This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. On today's episode, Blackberry's Vice President of Food and Beverage, Andy Chabot, sat down with winemaker Bruno Gaspard and importer Billy Weiss, who together poured an incredible selection of wines at our Big Flavor event. They wined through all things wine and chat about their personal journeys in the industry. Cheers! Hello, my name is Andy Chabot. I'm uh, here with uh, Bruno Gaspar and Billy Weiss. Uh, Bruno, a winemaker from Chateauneuf-du-Pape. Um, Billy, an importer, uh, for an event that we call Big Flavor, and uh, want to spend a few minutes uh, talking to them, getting to know them, and hearing about uh, what makes them tick. So, Bruno, Billy, thank you for being here. Thank you. We're Drew. excited. Awesome. Great. So. Um, you know, really, Billy, let me jump in just, you know, with you. Um, how'd you get into wine? Because it doesn't, uh, I mean, you're not um, the original owner of your import company. You're the second owner. Is that right? You know, I would say, I, well, I first got into wine um, in my hometown, Jackson Hole. I was coming out of college and working in a ski shop in the evening. And um, I started taking some shifts at a wine store as well. And I, I just fell in love with it. Um, I love the agricultural bent, which was kind of something I grew up in, in with in Wyoming. I had a, you know, my family had a small little ranch. And then um, I was a history major, so I loved the stories. And I loved kind of hearing what made wines better. And, and, and um, it was just, it really captured my imagination. Um, fortunately, a license came available in Jackson Hole. And uh, I bought it and started uh, kind of the first fine wine shop uh, in in town, about three blocks off the square for people who are familiar with it. And we had a great run. This was kind of in the late 90s. It was called Broadway Bottle Company. Uh, the store is still there. Um, and I really wanted to kind of take the next step. Um, I was still very interested in the retail side of the business. Uh, but I had a fabulous love for French and Italian wines and wanted to kind of explore some importing options. Um, I met a really good friend in Jackson, uh, Master Sommelier, uh, Ken Fredrickson, and he mentioned to me that uh, uh, North Berkeley Imports, which at the time was really just a, a retail shop in Berkeley, was for sale. And Ken was exploring uh, the options of, of buying the store. And, and I got all animated inside and said, that's what I want to do. Um, I know North Berkeley. I'm really excited about it. And um, I met a guy on a fishing trip. And we kind of struck a deal to take to the owner. And mm -hmm. I bought North Berkeley uh, in 1999. Um, nice. And at that point, um, we still have the core part of the retail store as, as a major component. Um, but um, we expanded the whole import side, the Italian book, and um, I worked hard to kind of create our distribution basis through pretty much most of the United States right now with the exception of the Atlantic Seaboard. Did they already have an import license when, when you bought it? We had something very, very unique, and you cannot get them anymore. And I, I believe it's myself, and maybe Kermit Lynch, maybe yeah. Martins has one. But the previous owner, John Conley, um, who essentially owned uh, the real estate that the shop was in, uh, 
he and Greg Dixon, who was running the shop at the time, realized that they could get a winery license. Mm. Back in the day, you could go to Camus, love the wine, and you weren't able to uh, carry it out the door. So California created a special liquor license where you could go to a winery and do what you call cash and carry. We seized upon that, and we essentially got the same type license. And it allows us to uh, give, uh, uh, it affords us to have the whole three tiers of the system where we're the importer, the distributor, and the retailer. And to my knowledge, very, very few people have the cash and carry component of that license. And it's great because it allows us to get wines to our retail customers at a very good price. Right, and wines that they otherwise might not have access to. Yeah, we try to get them things that are unique and special to our portfolio. So... If we're working, um, let's say, with Clos de Caillou and Bruno here, we can uh, bring in the regular range of wines, but they do sell other wines that we could bring in and just sell to the retail clients. Sure. So it's worked and, out great. So where did that love of uh, European wines come from? Was that from your time at the wine shop and getting to taste those, or was that some innate um, love? Because it, it really molded the future for you. Well, my, my parents were frustrated restaurateurs in, in Wyoming, and mom and dad opened up a fine dining restaurant in Cody, Wyoming called Le Gourmand. And nice. um, <laughs> it was quite the thing for, for Cody at that time. And, uh, you know, they were into fine food and, and wine, and I, I would, you know, sit back in the kitchen and do some dishwashing shifts when I was a little kid and, and was, you know, really interested in it. I mean, certainly in college, I was drinking pretty much uh, bush, you know, bush light. <laughs> but uh, once I got out and just started being exposed to more and more uh, European wines as the sales reps came through the through my store to, you know, sample me, I really gravitated towards them. And I, yeah. I just I made it a point, And this is so important. I was never scared about asking a dumb question yeah. because I really didn't know anything. <laughs> And so, you know, I just, uh, you know, immediately took trips out to to Napa, up to, to the Willamette Valley, Central Coast, when I was a retailer uh, in Jackson. And, um, you know, it was really just kind of self-learned uh, over the years. Wow. So what was your first trip to France like? I mean, was that the first? It was so intimidating. It was so intimidating because I was young. And Bruno probably knows his gentleman. My first stop was Clomont Olivet. And I met with the grandfather Mm. and I came in and he looked at me and he was close to death and he must've been 85. And he's like, who is, you know, who is this guy? (laughs) And, and, and the, the, the people that owned the winery were, were very intimidating. They were very quiet. And, um, it was, it was interesting, you know, the importing back then was just a different world. Um, the generation of, of Bruno at La Clota Caillou and the other people that I work with, they go to America, they go to Australia, they are very familiar with international travel and, and the clientele. But the generation before Bruno, right. they didn't even drink each other's wines. Hmm. And was that because they were prideful? Or and maybe Bruno uh, you know, can can say to that, you know, why why didn't the generation before you, you know, travel a lot or, or you know, drink wines from other regions? Or? No, because, um, you know, in France, you, you cannot find, uh, uh, you, you, you find only French wine in, in mm-hmm. the retail shop. So um, it's uh, really difficult to, um, 
to uh, to uh, taste uh, California wine or uh, Australian wine or or the other wines. Yeah, uh, it's and easy to 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 taste French wine, but uh, you others know. And when I when I start my uh, uh, students, uh, it was the the first time a guy who go uh, outside France to make uh, his um, practice. You really? know. Uh, it was unusual. Uh, nobody uh, travel uh, over France. They they stay in France. And where did where did you go? Where did where and, did you do your I, I I stay in France, but okay. a friend of me go in China with uh, John Venture. Uh, really? Yeah, John Venture with uh, Remy Martin. Huh. And so it's the first time uh, you have student to go uh, outside the France. So. Uh, it was uh, in the, in a then, long time ago, but uh, but the, in the generation and and prior the next the next generation the next. after me uh, now uh, all the oenologists make uh, one step in uh, in uh, north uh, world and one one step in uh, south world really? and so they they make two harvests during one one year yeah uh, and after they make that uh, two or three times mm-hmm. and and found after a job. Yeah. It's not easy now to to find directly when you you, uh, you the school was finished to find a, a directly a job in France. Really, you must you must uh, practice uh, everywhere, hmm. and so uh, mostly of people go in Australia, New Zealand, uh, to make a, a second harvest in a, in a day in a in a year. In a year. Wow. So so Bruno, tell me about your background and and where. Where you came from, I know you as the winemaker of Clos du Caillou uh, from 2002 yeah, on. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not. My family was not in in the, in the wine business, no. but I studied in um, in in France in Marseille in South France, uh-huh. and I meet some people and it's uh, some meetings with uh, uh, wine grower and uh, I make first uh, the harvest because. My family was farmer. They mm-hmm. make cheese, and so they uh, they know um, wine grower. And I asked to my uncle to to go to make harvest because I I want to make harvest, and so it's it start with this. And after uh, I have some friends who make studai uh, in analogist, and uh, I say it's a good good way of of, of studai, and yeah. uh, and I started studai uh, in uh, in Montpellier. Okay. Uh, when I finished uh, my uh, uh, my degrees, uh, I start to to work in Bandol, uh, oh, really? so in uh, in, uh, in Domaine de Fregat okay. during three years. Mm-hmm. It was my first job, and um, and after I I tried to uh, to make my home own wine in uh, in Languedoc in Corbière yeah. during um, during four years. Um, in an association with uh, another wine grower, but after four years, it's a little bit difficult in uh, for the association, and uh, so uh, I left, uh, and uh, I go in uh, in the Rhone Valley to uh, Chateau du Trignon in Gigondas sure. during uh, twelve day twelve years, and. Um, um, Claude du Caillou in 2002, uh, you have a big, 
big problem because the, the owner, Jean-Denis, Jean-Denis Vacheron, sure. died in a car crash. And okay. so some friends of me say to me, uh, uh, perhaps you must uh, uh, meet uh, people of Claude Caillou. And uh, since this mm-hmm. time, I work uh, in Claude Caillou. Wow. So. Is your family from southern France? Yes, yeah, southern France, yeah. I see. Yeah, in Pyrenees. Okay. That makes sense. They're making cheese. Yeah. Then. So, Billy, how did you come to find Clodagh Caillou? Or really, what is the process by which an importer finds a, a winery? I mean, is it, do you go out looking for Clodagh Caillou? Or, or is there some other way to do it? I, I would say what we do, what I do right now is I have a network of sommeliers and wine bars that I frequently touch base with that are based in Italy and France, and mm. I get leads. Um, if I hear something from a sommelier in America, it's too late. Um, yes. So I kind of have a network of, of people that I've developed um, that are kind of always scouting, if you will. Um, I have a woman who runs my portfolio for Italy. She lives in Rome, and um, we work with another woman who's based in Luxembourg who does the French side. I so see. we're constantly looking, but we found uh, La Clos de Caillou through, through Vacheron. Um, Vacheron is a very famous uh, estate in Sancerre, which is in the Loire Valley. Um, they're very well known for their Salvian Blanc and Pinot Noir. And they had a family member that moved it, that married into uh, La, La Clos de Caillou. Uh, mm-hmm. So a Vacheron married a Buzan. And the family up in Vacheron was like, hey, you need to go down to, to Chateau Neuf de Pop and, and, and see what they're doing. And they're, they're going to be, you know, doing some wonderful stuff down there. So right. that's how we ended up with uh, La Clos de Caillou, 1997, 98. So it's that long ago that you started work with Clos de Caillou. Yeah. Huh. Is that when um, Jean... Jean Denis. Yeah. Denis, is that when he yes, went there? Yeah, he absolutely. was 96? He or? came in 96 in Claude Caillou with uh, Sylvie, I see. His, uh, his wife. Uh, Sylvie was, uh, is um, one of the three daughters of the, the owner. Right. And uh, Claude Puisin. And uh, Claude Puisin retired in 1995. And so they, they decided to, uh, to go to uh, Claude Caillou to uh, run the, the Claude Caillou. But at, at this time, uh, Claude Caillou don't sell a, a lot of bottles. They make uh, only um, one Chateau Neuf and two Cadurons. It represents mm-hmm. around um, 20,000 20, bottles. And the rest of the wine are selling for negotiation and especially for Gigal. Sure. Um, and when uh, Jean-Denis and Sylvie came back, they, uh, they, they make more... Um, more bottle because they uh, they make single vineyards and so uh, there uh, Jean Denis know, knows that because he he came from Domaine Vacheron and they 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 make a lot of bottle at this time yeah. so it's single uh, vineyard yeah, bottlings yeah I see is that yeah. common in Sancerre as well or are they sort of a leader in in that in that family are they sort of I mean, Vacheron, and especially the two cousins that run it, do a lot of different cuvées that mainly express terroir. But we also work with Pascal and Francois Cote, right. who have a lot of different cuvées. But at that time, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that was that was unique. Right. And, and it was interesting. And I remember when, when Jean-Denis came in, 
um, I would go to the domain and, you know, first off, he's from Sancerre. Right. Make, you know, he could make some Pinot Noir, but learning about Grenache and Syrah was, was a, a big learning curve. And so at that time, he was experimenting a lot with different cuvées. He had some special cuvées just for North Berkeley. One was called Rocherone, which was a lot of Syrah. Hmm. One was called Trevi Vigna, which was very, very old vines. And um, it was kind of a really neat point in time where there's a lot of um, kind of experimentation going on. And then um, I think when Bruno started in that tenure of, 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 of kind of his reign began, you really saw a great solidification of all those concepts coming together. Got you. Got you. So tell us a little bit about the estate, the Clos de Caillou. It has a unique history that uh, I think is, is, is pretty interesting. Um, so, so if you don't mind to share with us. Yeah. Um, the Clos de Caillou, it's um, uh, a real Clos, you know, with a wall. And um, it was created in uh, 19, uh, uh, 1890. 1890. So, so a long time ago, yeah. by a, a guy who is chief engineer of Ferdinand de Lesseps. Oh, wow. And this guy, uh, with his brother, um, built uh, the Suez Canal and Marseille port. And he, he built uh, this clue for a, a hunting reserve. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, only at this time six hectares of vineyards uh, and 11 hectares of, of wood. And he built a cellar. He, he built uh, um, his holiday house. It's now the city hall of Courtaison. It was uh, hmm. crazy. It's a big, big uh, chateau. Uh, and it was at this time, it was uh, owner of uh, La Ferme de Beaucastel. You know, so uh, it was great man and um, when uh, when the expert came in 1936 uh, to uh, to um, create the appellation of Chateau du Pape and look around the vineyards to fix the limit uh, they when they they go uh, at Claude Caillou uh, you have some guards who look after the hunting reserve mm-hmm. and the, the guards say uh, uh, go out to the to the expert with the gun because it's private. So the the experts say, uh, okay, if we cannot see the vineyards, we cannot classify it in in Chateauneuf. And since since this time, the the clue was in Codiron. So outside the world, it's Chateauneuf, but inside it's uh, stay Codiron, and it's a sort of island in uh, of Codiron in Chateauneuf. Sure. And so so there's this amazing little section of walled in area inside of Chateau du Pape that isn't called Chateau du Pape. It's what, no. what most people would declassify or, or say is declassified or is Cote Yeah, it's Cote Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, and you have uh, all around the, the limit of Chateau you have some vines and stay in Cote And we have, so in a second part in the, in the north of the appellation, just near Bocastel. Mm-hmm. And it's the same, the same things. But it's not an island, you know, it's just on the limit. And, right, uh, it's right on it's, the uh, Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the name is Garrigue and Coudoulet. Okay. And so you have a lot of uh, winemakers have this type of uh, wines, uh, vines in, in, uh, in all around the, the limit of Chateauneuf. Right, right, where they go outside and it's cooked yeah. around. And yeah. yeah, yeah. So the inside of the clo, when did they plant more vines? 
Because I know there's some very old vines there, as, as a cuvee of Billy's obviously had at one point. But you said there were only six hectares originally? And, uh, yes, but um, when, uh, when Sylvie grandfather and, and uh, Sylvie father uh, bought the, um, the Clos du Caillou in 1956, um, they, they, they are a winemaker in North Vaucluse. And they are uh, grandfather, Sylvie grandfather have three sons, and uh, they uh, they cannot uh, work uh, all in on the, the vineyards. So uh, uh, Sylvie father Claude Puisin was uh, the youngest, and so they buy the Claude du Caillou, and he make a lot of work in the vineyards uh, during twenty years. So he he, he plants the eleven hectares of wood. On vines, vines and uh, he bought some block uh, just outside the the clos. Uh, the name is uh, Lebedine, uh, Gigas, Pignon, and Les Cassanets. It's the block uh -huh. on, on Chateauneuf, and he, he bought two the the, the vineyards uh, uh, just on the limit, just near Bocastel. Gotcha. So he make he make a great job in the vineyards because he, he plant a lot of uh, new vines. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that these vines are old now, and right. they, have, they are more than 60 years old. Uh, but we have older vines uh, inside the Clos and outside in the, on the block of Chateauneuf too. I see. So it's a very old vineyard. So we we have very low yields, but very good quality of fruit, and so the wine are. Sure. Uh, not really uh, simple called John. I absolutely agree. I think if you're looking for maybe one of the best values in the world, it might be those Cotarones of Clos du Caillou. Um, I mean, they're, they're great, great wines. Tell me, you know, and you mentioned this, Billy, that, you know, um, you know, coming from Sancerre to Chateauneuf-du-Pape is like learning, maybe learning winemaking again for, for, um, for him, but you know, you've worked in the south of France really for for your winemaking life yeah uh you know what is unique about chateau neuf du pape or the south of france and and how has it changed you know and you've probably seen a lot of change billy over the years too of, from a what might some people might call a relative backwater area to something that's more world famous but how did it change and, and what's challenging about it um chateau neuf du pape it's uh um the the well-known um, vineyards in, in South Rhone, because uh, you have a long history with uh, with vineyards, but you have others really like uh, Gigondas or Vaqueras or, or Rasto. Uh, but in Chateauneuf, it's um, um, I think the best uh, one of the best terroir for the Grenache. And you can mix it in Chateauneuf de Pape. You can blend how many grapes together now? You, we can grapes 13 varieties, uh, but the most important is the Grenache. And after you have Syrah, Morvedre, we have Syrah, Morvedre, uh, Cunoise, uh, Muscardin a little bit uh, for the red. Uh, and for the white, you have white Grenache, white Claret, pink Claret, Bourboulinque, hmm. uh, and Roussan. Gotcha. So um, a lot of a lot of it, options. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, Billy. How do you think it is? Sort of. I mean, you've been in the business trying to sell it, you know, for years. Uh, how have you seen it sort of change? Are people 
asking for it more by name now, or did you have to push it for years? It sounds like you got into selling Chateau Neuf du Pop kind of early on. Yeah, I, you know, it's I, I love this question because in the late 90s, Chateau Neuf du Pop was one of the most highly regarded, well-known wine regions that you could find and, you know, that Americans knew about. It was a wine that represented a great value compared to Bordeaux or Burgundy. You could get world-class wine for a lower price. It also came from a region that a lot of Americans vacationed in. So, really? that, you know, yeah. they had kind of a connection to the south of France and, and Provence and Chateau neuf de Pop. Um, and then, of course, you had Robert Parker, who really started to get behind the region mm. uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And the biggest thing that I've seen changed um, on the winery side, on the quality side, uh, just like everywhere in, in France and most of the European wine world, better practices in the vineyards, better conditions in the wineries, whether it's air conditioning, temperature control, temperature control is, has been critical. Hmm. And um, uh, doing one bottling, it was not uncommon 15, 20 years yeah. ago to get an order you bottle and you still leave the rest of the wine in the tank. And then you really? got another order and you bottle it. Of course you have varying degrees of different wines from the same vintage. And then if it got really hot in the summer, you had a big problem. Right. <laughs> but sure. um, So the, I think the quality control in the vineyards and in the winery have really come a long ways. Um, but the difficult part is there are a lot more people making Chateau Neuf to pop. Now there are a lot more winemakers. And really? so, um, the consumers have a, have a lot of choice. You know, fortunately, when you work with somebody like Claude Caillou, uh, they have been around long enough. They've had enough accolades in the press. And as an importer, North Berkeley Imports, we have continually pushed their message that these are the leading shots of the pop producers that, um, you know, we can sell the wines and, and, and share these wonderful products with everybody. But the sales channels definitely gotten clogged up over the last 10 years really? with other wineries otherwise is that because people have planted more vineyards or you know have have wineries broken broken apart as generations have have changed no uh, some people uh, some people sell uh, a lot uh, in um, for a negotiation okay. uh, because uh, bottling it's a it's a job hmm. uh, wine brewing it's a job yeah uh, winemaking it's a job so uh, and selling it's a job so uh, you must uh, have uh, uh, make uh, a lot of job uh, I see. Uh, and uh, uh, for selling you must speak English and uh, it's not easy for the old generation to speak English and uh, and so um, they uh, they say they they make not a lot of bottle and uh, uh, that's work at, at this time gotcha. but the new generation. Uh, learn more and, uh, and travel more and so uh, you have more and more uh, uh, um, good good producers in Chateauneuf and it, it's good for everybody because it's a sort of uh, um, uh, raising quality yeah all and, and uh, em, we say in French emulation but it's uh, I don't know the terms in English uh, it's a sort of friendly competition sure. so yeah yeah i think sort of the the rising tide idea you know raises all 
So organic certification yeah. happened at Clodu Caillou yeah. uh, in 2010? In two, 2010, yeah. Because um, um, we don't care about certification uh, uh, during a long time. Uh, mm-hmm. Claude, Claude Puisan, Sylvie, father, work organic mm-hmm. uh, because it's, uh, I think it's uh, uh, the best way to wine grooving. Um, and we, we don't want to uh, certify it, but the, the market uh, um, wants to be, uh, want to have a certification. And uh, so we, we, we make the job. So uh, it's only paper. Mm-hmm. And you know, right. we, we know what is paper in France. You make it lots. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And so it's, uh, it's not a problem. Uh, so we, we decided to, to start uh, uh, in 2007. And so we are certified since uh, the vintage 2010. And at the same time, we, we begin practice uh, biodynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, we go slowly because we have 44 hectares of uh, Côte so and yeah. nine in Châteauneuf. But it's, uh, it's, that's work and uh, we, we, it's uh, step by step. And uh, now since uh, uh, two years with the new generation, the Sylvie, uh, Sylvie son and Sylvie daughter, Axel and Marilou, mm-hmm. uh, that's help us. And uh, and we since two years we we are all uh, in uh, biodynamic practice. Wow! But it's for the moment it's new. we we don't uh, ask the certification. Understood. It's, it's uh, we must progress. Understood. How how important is that for you, Billy? When you're looking at wineries that they're organic, or or you know what do you so you get these tips from sommeliers and wine bars and and things. You go and check out the winery. How do you decide that it's it's a fit for you. Yeah, it, it's important because the winemaker's relationship to their to their land, to their vineyards, um, you know, is going to give you a clue on how they treat the wines when they make them. Um, and certainly we are finding more and more often um, restaurants, retailers and consumers who insist on it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the certification, it's as Bruno said, it's just paper. And you got to pay a fee and, and do a few other things. You know, a lot of people believe that if it's if it's your mental mentality and it's in your heart and soul to be organic, do you really have to have a piece of paper to prove it? Um, mm-hmm. But um, we are finding in our markets that it's very important to some of our customers. I see. Um, and so um, we would we encourage it. And if a producer is certified organic, we we definitely. Uh, talk it's a big part of the discussion when we we explain the wines sure is there sort of a vein uh stylistically that runs through in your opinion you know the wines that make it into your portfolio as a a wine buyer on on nearly the final side of the the program i i sometimes know you know the style of burgundy that this person's going to have in their book or this person and sometimes it aligns with my taste and sometimes it doesn't you know, is there some kind of thing like that that you're looking for? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it, it's what I am looking for when we are working with our wineries or discovering new wineries is first off having balance up front. Um, you need to understand that the majority of consumers who are under 40 years old are going to drink that bottle within two years. 
I have a number of friends who are, you know, well-to-do doctors or in the financial services, and they say, Billy, I'll buy, I'll spend a lot of money for an old wine released yeah. from Clos de Caillou, but I'm not going to buy it and sell it myself for five, ten years. Um, so you have to have balance in the wine up front. And what does that mean? You have to have fruit, you have to have balanced alcohol, tannins, and acid, okay? If you have balanced wine up front, then you'll have balanced wine five, 10, 15 years down the road. Yeah. And I've always been very frustrated when someone says, well, this wine doesn't really taste good now, but maybe in 20 years it'll come around. Yeah. Um, so I believe first off in balance, but then most importantly to me, um, from a central component, it's, it's texture right. and it's length on the palate. How long does this wine linger in this mouth? And those are two very compo- uh, important components of tasty wine for me to be part of the portfolio. Understood. And, and I've noticed a few bottlings over the years that I've been, you know, tasting your wines and buying your wines that, um, bear a, a cuvee unique sort of, um, strip or something along those lines. And I know you make some with Clos du Caillou. Uh, maybe some with some of the Burgundy producers. Is that um, what goes into that? What's the thought process? The Cuba Unique program started about 20 years ago, when there was a lot of generational changes. So you had Cyprian Arlo taking over from his father. Sure. You had Frederic Manian taking over from his dad. You had generational changes at Acard, Delarche, and all these producers that we worked with. And um, what would typically happen is the the kids had a vision. They knew they had great terroir, mm-hmm. but maybe their father wanted them to make a safer style of wine. An older style. An older style of wine. Um, and so they were frustrated and we would pair up with these winemakers, make suggestions, but they, they made the wine. I want to make that clear. Sure. But we made suggestions about what to do. Even simple things like hand harvest your Bourgogne Rouge, which was a lot of people still don't do. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, what they were able to do is go to their parents and say, hey, I got this importer in California. We're going to do a couple special barrels for them as an experiment. Um, but don't worry, everything, will, you know, all the other wines will be in the old old style of the domain. Well, after three or four years, the parents were tasting our cuvee uniques. Mm-hmm. And they're like, wow, this is this is really, really good. And then you started having the press right, going right. in like Robert Parker or Steve Tanger and saying, this is a uh, this is a Merceau from Bowie Martineau, and here's the same wine. That's a Cuvée Unique, and we would get better press notes, mm-hmm. better points. Um, and so over time, um, a lot of those winemakers came around to our way of thinking, and we were simpatico in that regard. And the Cuvée Unique designation kind of went away. Went away on that. Um, we've been doing something with Caillou that's always just been a lot of fun and special to us. And it's one of our most identifiable wines for our customers. And it's a, it's an old vine, uh, Cote Rhone, that, uh, comes, uh, from Caillou that we collaborate with Bruno and, uh, it's a lot of fun. And it's something that, uh, of all the wines that we import, I think our, our customers, you know, always remember that that great Caillou Cote Rhone Cuva Unique. Yeah, I mean, I think this was my first time tasting it yesterday during the tasting, and I love it. I know we have one on our dinner tonight, yeah. which I've also tasted in all honesty at this point because I got them already. What do you think? Um, you know, the the future of the wine business is for you for importing. I mean, there are challenges on the, the table. Yeah, the now. near the near term, there's a ton of challenges, right? We have tariffs. 
we have contain we can't get containers right now because of uh, the coronavirus and worldwide positioning of of refrigerated boxes um, that are not coming out of China. Um, we have stock market issues. The dollar has been fluctuating, but at the end of the day, I've been doing this for gosh over over twenty years, mm-hmm. and I've been through housing recessions, mortgage you know disasters. Sure. Uh, people hating, you know, the French because of the first Gulf War. I mean, all sorts of nonsense. And we're here to stay. Um, we have a good plan. We have capital. But most importantly, we have really, really good winemakers, people that will work with us when times are tough. So, um, you know, the next 12 months is going to be a little bit of a ride. Sure. Maybe if there's an administration change, things will move one way or the other. I, I don't know. Um but I'm very optimistic. I'm very optimistic about the state of our industry. Um, and I'm looking forward to doing this job for another 20 years. I love that. And Bruno in, in Chateauneuf-du-Pape, uh, it's come a long way in, in 15 or 20 years. Do, how do you see the future of Chateauneuf-du-Pape? Uh, we have some, some um, uh, problem with the, 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 the warm weather. Yeah. Uh, with the with the um, the quantity of of rain uh, during one year, sometimes you have no rain during the summer, so it's a little bit. Uh, we are a little bit anxious about the the this this problem, but mm-hmm. um, we we have old vines, so the roots are uh, down down the subsoils, and so. It's uh, on, on the problem is more with the young vines, That's it. Um, and we don't uh, irrigate, uh, so um, perhaps we we need to to make this. I, I'm I'm not a, a partisan of uh, irrigation, but we must we must uh, think about a new system, perhaps uh, in in the in uh, in in the subsoils in, uh, to. 50 to 60 centimeters down. Wow. Uh, we don't know. We don't know, but uh, uh, it's a it's a big problem. So we we replant more Mourvedre and more more Sanso uh, than Grenache, but Grenache must stay the, the basis of our uh, vineyards. You know, so um, it's a it's a, it's one of the problem. The second problem it's a, the problem of, of the market. You know. Uh, so, uh, but I, I think uh, takes uh, uh, sometimes it's down, sometimes it's uh, it's high, and it's uh, always a cycle. So I think uh, a couple of months or half a year it will be better. Yeah. Uh, especially with the tariff, uh, but uh, we see. But I, I'm we'll op- optimist too, and we. Well, two days ago, our confirmation. We we bought a new uh, new vineyards, wow. just uh, close to the Clos du Caillou, uh, six hectares of Chateauneuf. So, if we make that, uh, it's we are optimists. Congratulations! Yeah. Congratulations! Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you both for spending time talking to me today. I appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to tonight's dinner, the wine, the food, It'll be an enjoyable time. Cheers! Thank you, Thanks, Andy.
Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on blackberryfarm.com and blackberrymountain.com. Make a great day.